We've been talking about this whole time, all these kind of steps that we hear almost every season, right, about the, the journey toward Christmas, the journey of hope, the journey of love, the journey of joy, the journey of peace. And I've been trying to tell you every week, like, some ways that we can do that in our lives, that we can bring hope to someone or, or bring joy in, in someone's life or bring some love into someone's life, right, or, or have some peace ourselves. I mean, that's such a, a rare commodity to truly have peace in our lives and not be overwhelmed with what life has uh, coming our way. But listen, this is the thing, right? All, all of this whole journey is ultimately about this moment. It's about Jesus coming and being with us. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. So the end of the journey is, in fact, Jesus. And I want to talk to you about why that matters so much today. Why would it matter so much that Jesus would come um, I want to reiterate one more time that it's not too late to invite people out to the Christmas Eve service. We're going to talk about the story of his birth tonight together in a very unique setting. But I want to encourage you to pray for people who are in your lives. Pray, you know, pray for your, uh, your kids. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for your parents. Pray for your siblings. Just pray for those who are around you. Pray for classmates or coworkers, th- people who, who need to know Christ in their lives. And then find ways to show some love. That's our challenge for the series, that we would do that in a practical way. I want to... I want to uh, pray a prayer as we get uh, started in the Word today, and just that God would give us His wisdom and insight this morning. Not just me, all of us. Like, we all need God's wisdom and insight in our lives, so pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much today for this most holy day that we recognize, that we remember that you uh, came to earth. Father, this is a a huge deal. I feel like uh, every year we have these opportunities to glorify you because you came, and then glorify you because you died and were raised again. And so, Father, we just give you thanks and praise for the work that you are doing in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, We confess that he alone is our path to salvation and that we can have no wisdom, no insight, and no um, peace or joy or happiness or love apart from Christ. It does not exist, Father, but through you. All things are possible and all things do exist. So today in this time, I pray that we would have our minds and hearts focused on you. I know this time of year, it's hectic. There's lots going on, lots of opportunities. Father, I just pray that you would help us to set aside these next few minutes to focus on the things that you'd have us to know and that each of us would take the lessons, the things that you teach us and just live into them this week that you would show us the way to do that. Um, bless us as we go, Father. Bless us as we listen to you. Teach us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start with uh, a reading from the book of Psalms. We've been doing this for this series. Um, This is Psalm 40. And uh, I I want you to hear, I I called it a a desperate prayer. A desperate prayer, right? Psalm 40. Um, I waited patiently for the Lord. Oh, I'm sorry. I have a slide. I have a, if you want to turn there, you certainly can. It's on page, what, 390. And the book's on the table. The Bible's on the tables there. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders that you have done, the things that you have planned for us. No one can recount to you. Were I to speak and tell of them, they would be too many to declare. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced. 
burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, Here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, as you know, O Lord. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I do not conceal your love and your truth from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, O Lord. May your love and your truth always protect me. For troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. Be pleased, O Lord, to save me. O Lord, come quickly to help me. May all who seek to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, aha, aha, be appalled at their own shame. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation always say, may the Lord be exalted. Yet I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh my God, do not delay. A heartfelt psalm uh, written from David crying out in the time of, of struggle and of difficulty. And I just wanted to kind of start there as we're talking about the gospel of Jesus and why Christmas matters. Listen, this is our life experience. He says, he lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of mud and mire. I don't know where you're at sometimes in life, right? But I mean, I've heard, I read that psalm and I'm like, that's life. That's what it feels like so many times. And the psalmist is writing, David's writing here and saying that God has lifted him out of the pit. <clears throat> out of the pit. Now I want to kind of jump through here because I want to talk about just a few things, the opportunities that we have um, uh, to proclaim the good news of Jesus. My papers don't follow my Bible here. Yeah. In verse 9 he says, I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly. Um, I proclaim uh, your acts, your faithfulness, and your saving help. Like, that that's our confession to people is that Jesus does something that no one else can do. <laughs> I know it sounds like so simple and cliche, but this is the gospel of God, that Jesus does something that no one else can do. And th therefore, for this reason, the psalmists, like us, proclaim his righteousness, his faithful act, and indeed his saving acts. It says, I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. It's saving acts that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. But then we go all the way back around where, you know, he talks about, um, be pleased to save me, Lord. You know, that we can cry out, uh, do not withdraw your mercy from me. My sins have overtaken me. And, 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 and the illustration of saying, there, I have more sins than the hairs on my head, right? Like, I'm covered. I have an awareness of my brokenness and my failure. I think this is a, a desperate prayer indeed. My sins have overtaken me. And then he says to the Lord, so be pleased to save me. Be pleased to save me. I am poor and needy, Right? He kind of ends it where he, I have no way forward, but you. I love the way the psalm ends. Lord, do not delay. It's easy for us to, to think about that 
uh, psalm in maybe a poetic sense or think about that psalm in a philosophical sense. But the truth is that for thousands of years, people were crying out for a path of salvation. And they would try any method they could get. They, they, it's funny that the psalmist says, you don't require sacrifices because they were making sacrifices every week, all the time, making sacrifices. They were taking annual journeys in to make sacrifices to God. They were trying to find ways to, to appease God or to please God. And here, there's a recognition that there's no solution for our sin problem. I don't know if you believe that about the world. It's a uniquely Christian worldview that says that the world is broken, lost, hurting, and without hope, without God. It's not that God is just a, a, a good idea in your life. It's God is the good idea in your life. The left to our own devices, we will just destroy each other and consume each other. It's not a very popular view. People want to think more highly of ourselves. No, I'm different. I'm better. I can be right. But the psalmist cries out, and I don't know if you feel that, we're in the pit together. How do we get out? And for sure, Israel, waiting for Messiah, is crying out to God. Oh Lord, do not delay your coming. That's the thing about uh, being in the pit. You're, you're in a hurry to be rescued. <laughs> you're not like, it's not a casual thing to be in the mire. And I love that the psalmist pleads in that way. A desperate prayer. Lord, think of me. I'm poor and needy. Do not delay. So we talked then about this coming of Jesus and, and why it matters. And we're going to get into the very incarnation of Jesus today. Um, but I want to share with you, this is, I think I'm on the right spot here. Yeah, Isaiah. So I'm going to turn to Isaiah 9. You can look at the screens. You can turn there if you want. Um, Isaiah 9, 2 says this. I'm going to read 9-1 also. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom in those days for those who are in distress. I want to hear that again. In those days, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zeb Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. Now verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a new light has dawned, or a light has dawned, right? Those living where? In the shadow of death. This is the proclamation of Isaiah the prophet, right? There is one coming. The promise is going to be kept. The promise will be fulfilled. I was fascinated by something as I was contemplating uh, Christmas and coming in. We tell that story about Jesus and about how there's no room at the inn. And, and uh, we th I, I don't know if you think much about that, why that would be. Why the, the, this baby, the, any baby, should be on the streets, let alone the Messiah. How, how, why start things like this? Why not at least a comfortable home? Why not at least a couple of, you know, uh, mature, responsible parents? Not that Joseph and Mary weren't, but they were pretty young and seemed chaotic, right? Why? And, and this is what struck me. Um, actually, it comes in, in this first verse here of Isaiah the prophet. It's a really arcane kind of reference. It says, in the past he humbled Zebulun and the land of Naphtali which later on will become to be known as Capernaum. 
And I just want to talk about this for a second because I thought this was fascinating. Jesus was born with no place to rest. You might say he was born into suffering, even as a baby. Why would you lay him where donkeys, where, uh, where cattle, where um, whatever animals were being like sheep? Why lay him? We're going to go tonight to a barn. Why does that remind us so much of Jesus? Other than tradition and stuff, like really think about it. What practically was happening that he was probably laid in some kind of like grazing grass and not in a comfortable bed. I was reminded as I thought about uh, Christmas that when Jesus began to um, set his face for Jerusalem and to the cross, that people would come and say, you know, I'm going to follow you. And he would say, the, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I began to think about Scripture and think, wait a minute, he was born with no place to go. He lived with no place to go. Did he ever have somewhere to be? Did he ever have somewhere to belong? It seems the only definitive answer to this is there was one place that was prepared for Jesus. Do you remember the story? They were coming in to celebrate Passover. And the disciples said, Lord, what do you want to do? And he said, go to town, look for a man carrying a jar of water. And say, the master needs his room. And he'll say, the room is ready and show you a room prepared for me. Isn't that amazing? In this scripture, from the time of Jesus' birth, you think about him as a young man in the temple. He gets left behind and his parents leave him there. And he's 12 years old. He has nowhere to be except the Passover room at the end of his life. Wait, there's one thing, Capernaum. If you read the early parts of the Gospel of Mark, that maybe was where he had his carpentry or his, um, not even carpentry, is not the right word, a craftsman. And he was a woodworker. And that's maybe where he lived and had a business. He worked with his hands until he was about 30 years old. So when you hear that in this prophecy, it says, uh, uh, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. But this is going to be this beautiful place. So Jesus is born in Bethlehem, right, because of the census. Then he's raised in Galilee. Then he is living later in Capernaum, and then he has no place until the Passover. A man of suffering. As a matter of fact, something else that might not typically come um, up at Christmas because we, we like to think we get it, right? Like, I like to think I get it. I think I get it. Uh, Jesus, if, if, if I was there, you know, like those wise men, if I was there, like those shepherds, I would go, let's go check it out. <laughs> this is a big deal. I would understand it, right? But I want to show you something else. This is from Isaiah the prophet as well. Just a few chapters later in Isaiah 53, just give me a second to get there, we have this, this interesting uh, testimony I'm going to read verse 1, but we're going to focus on verse 2. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord, Yahweh, been revealed? The arm of the Lord is like the power of God. Who has revealed the power? Now listen to the testimony about the power of God. Verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground is Jesus. You remember the prayer of desperation? God, save me. My sin's covering me. I'm in the pit of despair. He grows up like a, a, a shoot, a tender shoot or a root out of dry ground. There's nothing. Look, listen to this. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Goes on to say he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and familiar with all forms of suffering. 
like one whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isn't that interesting? And we read that story of the shepherds and the wise men like, yes, we get it. But the truth is, no one understood. No one esteemed him. We have this, um, many of us will put under our trees. By the way, can I just share something with you? This whole, like, the sermon I did a few weeks ago on idolatry has been kicking my rear end <laughs> because <laughs> there are mangers everywhere. I'm like, okay, well, don't worship them. They're really cool. But, you know, we have them under our tree. We have them on our mantle. We have them in our homes to remind us of this quaint little scene. But it kind of glows for us, doesn't it? I mean, we have a little wooden one in our house, a tiny wooden one, and someone made the trouble of bend wire and put it around the people's heads because they got it right? But that's not what Isaiah says about the coming Messiah. No one gets it. No one sees it. No one sees the glory of God manifest in this child. That's the confession. That's the testimony. This life of suffering. Listen, I want us to think about a concept today. I want us to think about poverty. It might be enough to say, oh, that poor family with nowhere to go. You might even go, that mean innkeeper, or those mean people who wouldn't let them stay somewhere, right? But I want you to think about divine poverty. Divine poverty. That Jesus, who created all things, who was there from the beginning, who was, you know, just loving life with the Father and the Holy Spirit, completely self-satisfied at everything, became poor. Not by human standards, by divine standards. That he put on flesh. That he walked among us. This is the story of Christmas. We make it like this, kind of, oh, it's got to go. Listen, no. It's the story of God's poverty. That should give us pause. I want to share an awesome verse of Scripture with you today. I they're not all awesome. This is from Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to do a little work here. Hebrews 2, 14 through 17. Listen to the word. It's so easy to miss these things. This profound truth of the incarnation of Jesus. Incarnation means putting on the flesh, putting on the carne, the meat, Right? Verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. I want to just stop for a second, just for a second, and talk about what, what is being communicated to us. Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us. Since those that God made have flesh and blood, that's us, right? This is why Jesus came. This is why he shared in it. Look at what it says. Since children, he too shared in their humanity. It actually reads like he took on those same things. I want you to think about it for a minute. At Christmas, we have this little baby. But why does this little baby's blood cleanse all sin? What's unique about that? There's, because we have 
flesh and blood. In the same way, I want you to think about that. Do you ever think about the blood? Like, I know it's weird to say Christmas. The blood of Christ, like that it covers all sin, that it redeems all people. Here we have um, Jesus who has never had it before. <laughs> Does that make sense? If he doesn't come as a child, he has no flesh and blood. There's no blood of Jesus without incarnation. It doesn't exist. There's nothing, right? God is spirit, you know? Like, there's no physical manifestation like this. I would love to understand, by the way, when Adam and Eve are walking in the garden, talking to God, what that looks like. But we know it doesn't look like this. Because this is unique. But the word says, because the children had flesh and blood, he also took upon those same things. He took on flesh and blood, just like us. Why? Why would God, and this is what I would call divine poverty, by the way. Because the separation between who we are and who God is is so great that we can't even fully understand it. And yet he bridged that gap and became like us right? Which there's a whole lot of stuff we can unpack there. I don't, but there's a whole lot of stuff. We are made in his image, and he came in our image that he made us in, taking on flesh and blood. Well, the question is why. Look at what it says, um, why he did it. So that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. I want to unpack a couple of things here. First of all, he came to destroy the power of death. He came to destroy the power of death. That's why Jesus was born. There's one thing that incarnational ministry requires, and it's to, to, to come in the flesh so that he could destroy death. In fact, if you read it, he might destroy who? Not death, but him who holds the power of death. Your translation might say something besides devil. The biblical word is diablos. You know what that means. The slanderer, the liar the one who's double-tongued, the one who's manipulating us, the one who's lying all the time, lying to us about our truth of who we are. And the word says that Jesus took on flesh and blood so that he might destroy the liar, that he might destroy the one that's trying to deceive us. Because that one, and this is set true, because that one holds the power over death. That's a weird thing to say. Because you think, wait a minute, doesn't God hold the power over death? What, what does that have to do with the devil? See, death has power in the devil's hands. As a matter of fact, what's said next in the scripture is this. He came to set free those who've lived their whole lives in fear of death. In fear of death. You might think, uh, well, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to die. I mean, so many of us live our lives that way. Before we know Jesus, we live on the reckless edge of everything. But you know, you, you're pursuing that eternal youth. You think you're never going to die. But the scriptures say that you live in slavery to the idea of death. I want you to just think about something for a minute. If you think about the, mo the most difficult circumstances you can be facing, if you think about the most difficult thing in your life, there's something so hard, um, it doesn't, uh, it, it, it's, it's somewhere in the category of being afraid of, of what death means. 
maybe what uh, death means for you, maybe what death means for someone else in your, in your life. You're afraid of what that means. Everything gets scaled according to our understanding of death, right? This is how we experience it. And so like a, a little suffering can feel really big until we think about, well, I'm still alive. And then you go, okay, perspective-wise, it's not that bad. And the word says that Jesus took on flesh that he might destroy the what? Power of, the, the, destroy the devil, the power that he has over death, that we might be set free from that fear. This is why the incarnation happens at Christmas. And make no mistake, this is a Christmas verse. I, I don't think I've ever thought of it in this way. But now look at this. So he came to set free all those. I want to say one thing about this. The idea of being set free is to exchange people where they don't belong. He, he, he was going to exchange us into freedom because we rightly were under this curse of death and he was going to exchange us out of it. That's what it implies here, the Greek. So, but listen to 16. Because surely it is not angels he helps, but rather, rather Abraham's descendants. This is why Jesus came. He didn't come to amaze the angels. He didn't come to be a spectacle for the, with the cosmos. He came to save us. That's why he was manifest in this way. Does that make sense? There's this whole backstory about why that would matter. Um, that he would not be there to, to uh, save the angels. Uh, it's not for the angels he's helping, but rather Abraham's is for us. That's why Jesus was incarnated. That's why he's so unique, and that's why he's required for us. Because he was coming to help us, verse 17 says... This is the reason he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way. That means he had to be just like us. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted and he is able to help those of us who are being tempted ourselves. This is why he came to serve as this role now, I don't know if you think about this very often, um, but the role of a priest in our lives, we don't often think about that in our context. Um, but a priest would be someone who would stand between us and God. And a priest isn't a passive position, it's an active position. It's a working position. And there's kind of two major things that happens with, with a priest. Um, the priest uh, talks to God before the people, and the priest talks to the people for God. You might say prophet as well, but, you know, and... Um, uh, king, but, but this idea is he stands in that position between us and God. He's an intermediary, and the word says he's that so that he might make atonement for us. That means that he might satisfy God. And I just wanted to unpack all that to say that this is what Christmas is about, that the divine poverty happens so that we might be rich. And he came that we might be free. That he exchanged himself that we might be set free from the fear of death. And, listen to me, he totally pleases God. He totally pleases God in doing this. And therefore, God is pleased with us because of him. This is the gospel of Christmas that he might make atonement for our sins. All right, so what does it mean? Okay, so, like, listen, I think that there's three things that we can do at Christmas um, 
to glorify God for his incarnation because it is worth our attention, you know, that he would do this. It is worth our attention that he would give himself in this way. Um, the first is that, and th- these are things that God didn't, these are things that we, you, and I can, you and I can do. Um, we can believe the gospel of Jesus Christ for ourselves. And I want to share with you a verse from 1 Timothy. Um, this is also about the incarnation. It says, he appeared in the flesh. Uh, he was, he appeared in the flesh. Like, th- this is a truth of who Jesus is. I just recently heard someone teaching about Christ, and they were saying, well, Christ is spirit, and Jesus was the best version of Christ, but he's just a version of Christ. And that is not what we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus who came in the flesh, fully God and fully man. This is the truth of the gospel that we should believe. And that he was vindicated by the Spirit. You remember he would say things like, if you knew my father, you would know me. You would think vindication by the Spirit might mean that his detractors were proven wrong. But listen, he was vindicated by the Spirit because he was raised from the dead. Because the final gate that was supposed to keep all men down couldn't keep this man down. He was vindicated by the Spirit when he was raised. Look, he was seen by the angels. They did see what he was doing. Matter of fact, there's an argument to be made that we have a closer relationship with God because of Jesus Christ than the angels do. When we think about those angels that are singing glory, glory, and all that stuff, we're closer to him than they are because of Jesus, which is profound to think about. The word says that he was preached among the nations. Who was? The one who was made flesh was proclaimed among the nations. And then, check it out, he was believed in this world. And, and that's, our, that's our opportunity, to believe Jesus now, to believe the truth of the gospel now. And then he was taken up in glory. Listen, interceding at the right hand of the Father right now, doing the priestly work right now that we might know him intimately in our lives. So the first thing we can do is that we can believe the gospel of Jesus Christ for ourselves. Many times whenever we um, get discouraged and people in our lives and we're like, why don't, why don't they understand it? But, you know, are we believing it actively? Are we living it actively that we believe this is the truth? Because until we do that, no one around us is going to have any understanding of what the gospel is. Until we get it in our head that, that, that this Christmas manifestation of God is the greatest gift we've ever had and that we ought to see it differently than the whole world does. No one else around us is going to care much more than that. So we ought to believe it ourselves. The second thing, though, I want to encourage you in this today is if you're sitting here and you're believing the good news, right? Like, you know, you've heard it, you believed it. You're like, yes, you have your own private time with Jesus. You know what I'm saying? It's not like a church thing. It's not a Sunday morning thing. It's not because I'm with the pastor thing. It's like in my life, I really believe it. And I just talk to God or whatever. I'm in a relationship. What's the second thing you can do? Once you're believing it for yourself and believing it all the more, which we could all be encouraged in, including myself, the second thing is we can believe it for other people. We can believe the good news for other people. And that might sound uh, um, silly to say, but it's a little bit different. I want to share with you a few verses here. Uh, This is from the Gospel of John, but I'm going to turn there because I want to read a little bit around it. Um, You've heard these words before, I'm sure. Uh, John 6. Okay, so check it out. In verse 37, all... 
that the Father, this is Jesus talking, all that the Father gives to me, what does the word say? Will come to me. All of them will. I just want to think about that for a minute as maybe you're thinking about people in your life you're going to maybe bump into this holiday season that you want them to know Jesus. I want us to have some confidence in the gospel that everyone that God has given to Jesus to be saved will be saved. All who are given to me will come to me, is what Jesus says. And whoever comes to me, I will not push away. So we know that we don't have a God that they have to go and beg and he's going to be closed down to whatever, but we have a God who is open-armed, ready to receive him, and God has given him to Jesus and they will, they will be his. I think that, that many times we spend our lives not believing the gospel for others. How about if we believe the gospel for others? Just, yes. Believing that God, listen, wants to save them and will save them. Now, do I know that people will continue to reject God? I do. I do. But can I believe that there's hope because of Jesus Christ? I can. And I'm going to. I'm not going to live a life of despair thinking there's no way because that's what the incarnation was about. Jesus makes a way when we see no way. That's the truth. Verse 38, Jesus goes on. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of the one who sent me. Jesus says, that's why I'm here. You want to know why he was incarnated? To do God's will. What's God's will? Verse 39. And this is the will of God who sent me, that I would not lose any, or that I shall lose none of all that he has given me. And then here's the last word, folks. Listen to me. And I will raise them from the dead. 39. I will raise them on the last day. This is the hope that we have in Jesus. Listen, <clears throat> not just for ourselves, for others. What would it look different? How would it look different if, if, if we believe that, right? If that, that person that your heart's breaking for, that person that you think, man, they're so far down the wrong road, they're so far gone, there's, and you start to buy the lie that there's no hope, that the Diablos whispering in your ear, there's no hope, give up, give up. How is it different if we go, no? There's always hope because of Jesus. He says, not one, none that God has given me will be lost. None. Don't get ahead of God on things. Like, don't get ahead of God and think, well, that's one that God hasn't chosen. We don't know. So let's walk around believing as though they are. Yes, you're a child of God. Yes, Jesus died for your sins. Listen, maybe you're here today and you don't believe that for yourself. I'm here to tell you, yes, Jesus died for your sins. Not just my sins, not just church people's sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And if you are given to Jesus by the Father, you will be saved. We praise God for that promise that we have in Jesus. And so we can live into that promise that we can believe the gospel for those. And then here's the last thing. <clears throat> and we're going to hit this and be done. Um, we should communicate the gospel clearly. Which, by the way, I'm not sure I'm great at. <laughs> communicate the gospel clearly. Because so many times we make it far more difficult than it need be. I'm going to work out of Romans. This will be our, our last, um, I think, I hope I'm not lying to you, our last passage today. Yeah, Romans uh, 8, uh, 1 through 4. 
Listen to the word. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look, no condemnation. This is the gospel of Jesus. That for those who are in him, there's no one condemning. As a matter of fact, that's part of the gospel. Is that the, all the accusers' lies are, put, are laid bare. They're not true anymore in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is now no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is a reality that we have to proclaim and live into. You're not living in guilt when you're believing in Jesus. There's no more condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. Why? Because... Through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life, look at the word, set you free from the law of sin. Your Bible might say, set me free. I'm okay with either one of those. It can go either way. But listen, set you free, the law of the spirit of Jesus. And what it set you free from? The law of sin and death. You see that? Because through Christ, why is there no condemnation? Because through Christ, the spirit of of life has set us free from the law. Okay, let me just, I just want to stop because I do want to be clear. The law is about doing all the things right. That's what the law is. The law is about being a perfect whatever, a perfect person, a perfect mother, a perfect father, a perfect husband, a perfect wife, a perfect employee, a perfect child, right? That's the law. Be perfect. No errors. This is, and that certainly brings condemnation, right? Who can live up to that? But this is that the gospel is that there is no longer condemnation for those who are set free by the Spirit. You don't believe me? Look at what the next verse says. Check it out. Because what the law was powerless to do and that it weakened the sinful nature, that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus came. Because the law, listen, will never bring righteousness. It won't. And I say this because I say, communicate the gospel clearly, because too many people say, just go to church. Just be a good person. Um, just, just, you know, be nice to your neighbor. Great. None of those things will save you. The law is powerless to save us. But Jesus is not. I love that but God there. But God did. Listen, the law was powerless to do, but God did by sending his son. That's the truth of the gospel, that he set us free. He made him, the word says, a sin offering. Now check it out. And because of this, why would Jesus be made flesh? He condemned sin in him. Your Bible might say he condemned sin in sinful man. The word says he condemned sin in the flesh. The cross of Christ is 100% tied to the, the, the uh, nativity of Christ. The reason that he was able to die on the cross was because he came in the flesh. And whenever God saw Jesus on the cross, he absolutely condemned sin in the flesh and blood of Jesus. That's the, the, the gospel. That's why Jesus came. You might think, well, man, you know, you're focusing too much. This is about Christmas. It is about Christmas. It is about Christmas. As a matter of fact, the words Christmas means Christ Mass, right? The offering of God. Listen, he condemned sin in the flesh on the cross. In order that the righteous requirements of the law would be fully met in who? Us. 
He condemned him so that we could be righteous. This is the gospel of Jesus. And so, I mean, that's what this is about. So how do we do that? We communicate clearly that there's no way. We say to those friends or family members, go, I'm just not good enough. You're right. Nobody's good enough. I'm not good enough either. I'm not good enough now. Well, no, I'm not good enough now. That God did in Jesus what none of us could do for ourselves. And that he condemned sin in the flesh so that we might be free. That we might be free. I don't know if you think about these things at Christmas, but I, I hope that you will. I hope that you will. And I don't know what God may have stirred in your heart this morning, but I hope that you're listening to what he's saying. Um, I want to pray together, and I, I just want to pray for salvation. I want to pray for salvation for those here who might need that. I want to pray for salvation for those who we know, who, who, who we think God has laid our hearts that needs that. And I want to pray a prayer of thanks for his offering in Jesus' name because we can do nothing apart from him. So pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much uh, for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for the incarnation, um, the truth that you came. And, you know, Father, if the way you make it into a cute little story, forgive us because it's a profound, eternal reality um, that Jesus would uh, lay himself down that we might be free that he would come and be with us, that we might be free. Father, I, f- I pray for friends who are here today who just constantly find themselves on that treadmill, just trying to prove themselves to you, maybe to themselves, to their parents, to other people, just trying to work hard enough to be good enough that they would just stop, that we would just stop. <laughs> and we would just realize that you've done a work in Jesus that we cannot do for ourselves. I pray, Father, for salvation that comes to the power of your Holy Spirit to us directly that no one must uh, teach us into, but that you must call us into. I pray, Father, if you're calling someone today, that they would be listening, they'd be obedient to the opportunity to receive you as Savior in their life. Father, for those in our lives that we have given up hope, would you forgive us for that? As your Spirit convicts us, to continue to believe good news in spite of all circumstances of the contrary. Would you help us to do that work? Father God, as much as you've called us into the harvest field to pray, to believe, to be faithful, would you help us to do that work? Help us to be people who believe. And Lord, may you save them (laughs) through your power, your grace, for your glory. May you save them. We love you so much. We thank you for the chance we have to know you, to believe you, to be in relationship with you. I just pray, Father, that you would continue to bless us as we move in this Christmas season. May you be glorified. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.